Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Tonight, I will be reading Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. So lie down. Close your eyes and let me read you a story. Chapter 3 Relates how Oliver Twist was very near getting a place which would not have been a sinecure. For a week after the commission of the impious and profane offence of asking for more, Oliver remained a close prisoner in the dark and solitary room to which he had been consigned by the wisdom and mercy of the ward. 
it appears at first sight not unreasonable to suppose that, if he had entertained a becoming feeling of respect for the prediction of the gentleman in the white waistcoat, he would have established that sage individual's prophetic character once and forever by tying one end of his pocket handkerchief to a hook in the wall and attaching himself to the other. To the performance of this feat, however, there was one obstacle, namely that pocket handkerchiefs, being decided articles of luxury, had been for all future times and ages removed from the noses of paupers by the express order of the board in council assembled, solemnly given and pronounced under their hands and seals. There was a still greater obstacle in Oliver's youth and childishness. He only cried bitterly all day, and when the long, dismal night came on, spread his little hands before his eyes to shut out the darkness, and crouching in the corner, tried to sleep, ever and anon waking with a start and tremble, and drawing himself closer and closer to the wall, as if to feel even its cold, hard surface were a protection in the gloom and loneliness which surrounded him. Let it not be supposed by the enemies of the system that, during the period of his solitary incarceration, Oliver was denied the benefit of exercise, the pleasure of society, or the advantages of religious consolation. As for exercise, it was nice cold weather, and he was allowed to perform his ablutions every morning under the pump in a stone yard in the presence of Mr. Bumble, who prevented his catching cold and caused a tingling sensation to pervade his frame by repeated applications of the cane. As for society, he was carried every other day into the hall where the boys dined and there sociably flogged as a public warning and example. And so far from being denied the advantages of religious consolation, he was kicked into the same apartment every evening at prayer time and there permitted to listen to and console his mind with a general supplication of the boys containing a special clause therein inserted by authority of the board, in which they entreated to be made good, virtuous, contented, and obedient, and to be guarded from the sins and vices of Oliver Twist, whom the supplication distinctly set forth, to be under the exclusive patronage and protection of the powers of wickedness, and an article direct from the manufactory of the very devil himself. It chanced one morning, while Oliver's affairs were in this auspicious and comfortable state, that Mr. Gamfield, chimney sweep, went his way down the high street, deeply cogitating in his mind his ways and means of paying certain arrears of rent, for which his landlord had become rather pressing. Mr. Gamfield's most sanguine estimate of his finances could not raise them within full five pounds of the desired amount, and in a species of arithmetical desperation, he was alternately cudgelling his brains and his donkey when passing the workhouse, his eyes encountered the bill on the gate. Whoa, said Mr. Gamfield to the donkey. The donkey was in a state of profound abstraction, wondering, probably, whether he was destined to be regaled with a cabbage stalk or two when he had disposed of the two sacks of soot with which the little cart was laden. So without noticing the word of command, he jogged onward. Mr. Gamfield growled a fierce imprecation on the donkey generally, 
but more particularly on his eyes, and running after him, bestowed a blow on his head, which would inevitably have beaten in any skull but a donkey's. Then, catching hold of the bridle, he gave his jaw a sharp wrench, by way of gentle reminder that he was not his own master, and by these means turned him around. He then gave him another blow on the head just to stun him till he came back again. Having completed these arrangements, he walked up to the gate to read the bill. The gentleman with the white waistcoat was standing at the gate with his hands behind him, after having delivered himself of some profound sentiments in the boardroom. Having witnessed the little dispute between Mr. Gamfield and the donkey, he smiled joyously when that person came up to read the bill, for he saw at once that Mr. Gamfield was exactly the sort of master Oliver Twist wanted. Mr. Gamfield smiled too as he perused the document, for five pounds was just the sum he had been wishing for, and as to the boy with which it was encumbered, Mr. Gamfield, knowing what the dietary of the workhouse was, well knew he would be a nice small pattern, just the very thing for register stoves. So he spelt the bill through again from beginning to end, and then, touching his fur cap in token of humility, accosted the gentleman in the white waistcoat. This here boy, sir, what the parish wants to prentice, said Mr. Gamfield. I, my man, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat with a condescending smile. What of him? If the parish would like him to learn a right pleasant trade in a good, spectable, chimney-speeding business, said Mr. Gamfield, I want apprentice, and I'm ready to take him. Walk in, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. Mr. Gamfield, having lingered behind to give the donkey another blow on the head and another wrench of the jaw, as a caution not to run away in his absence, followed the gentleman with the white waistcoat into the room where Oliver had first seen him. It's a nasty trade, said Mr. Limkins, when Gamfield had again stated his wish. Young boys have been smothered in chimneys before now, said another gentleman. That's because they damp the straw afore they lit it in the chimney to make him come down again, said Mr. Gamfield. That's all smoke and no blaze. Whereas smoke ain't of no use at all in making a boy come down, for it only sends him to sleep, and that's what he likes. Boys is very obstinate and very lazy, gentlemen, and there's nothing like a good hot blaze to make him come down with a run. It's humane too, gentlemen, because even if they've stuck in the chimney, roasting their feet, make some struggle to extricate themselves. The gentleman in the white waistcoat appeared very much amused by this explanation, but his mirth was speedily checked by a look from Mr. Limkins. The board then proceeded to converse among themselves for a few minutes, but in so low a tone that the words, saving of expenditure, looked well in the accounts, have a printed report published, were alone audible. These only chanced to be heard indeed on account of their being very frequently repeated with great emphasis. At length the whispering ceased, and the members of the board, having resumed their seats and their solemnity, Mr. Limkins said, We've considered your proposition, and we don't approve of it. Not at all, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. Decidedly not, added the other members. As Mr. Gamfield did happen to labour under the slight imputation of having bruised three or four boys to death already, it occurred to him that the board had perhaps, in some unaccountable freak, 
taken it into their heads that this extraneous circumstance ought to influence their proceedings. It was very unlike their general mode of doing business, if they had, but still, as he had no particular wish to revive the rumour, he twisted his cap in his hands and walked slowly from the table. So you won't let me have him, gentlemen, said Mr. Gamfield, pausing near the door. No, replied Mr. Limpkins. At least, as it's a nasty business, we think you ought to take something less than the premium we offered. Mr. Gamfield's countenance brightened, as with a quick step, he returned to the table and said, What'll you give, gentlemen? Come, don't be too hard on a poor man. What'll you give? I should say three pound ten was plenty, said Mr. Limpkins. Ten shillings too much, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. Come, said Gamfield, say four pound, gentlemen, say four pound, and you've got rid of him for good and all. There. Three pound ten, repeated Mr. Limpkins, firmly. Come, I'll split the difference, gentlemen, urged Gamfield. Three pound fifteen. Not a farthing more, was the firm reply of Mr. Limpkins. You're desperate hard upon me, gentlemen, said Gamfield, wavering. Nonsense said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. He'd be cheap with nothing at all, as a premium. Take him, you silly fellow. He's just the boy for you. He wants the stick now and then. It'll do him good. And his board needn't come very expensive, for he hasn't been overfed since he was born. Mr. Gamfield gave an arch look at the faces round the table, and, observing a smile on all of them, gradually broke into a smile himself. The bargain was made. Mr. Bumble was at once instructed that Oliver Twist and his indentures were to be conveyed before the magistrate for signature and approval that very afternoon. In the pursuance of this determination, little Oliver, to his excessive astonishment, was released from bondage and ordered to put himself in a clean shirt. He had hardly achieved this very unusual gymnastic performance when Mr. Bumble brought him, with his own hands, a basin of gruel, and the holiday allowance of two ounces and a quarter of bread. At this tremendous sight, Oliver began to cry very piteously, thinking, not unnaturally, that the board must have determined to kill him for some useful purpose, or they never would have begun to fatten him up in that way. Don't make your eyes red, Oliver, but eat your food and be thankful, said Mr. Bumble, in a tone of impressive pomposity. You're going to be a princess, Oliver. Apprentice, sir, said the child, trembling. Yes, Oliver, said Mr. Bumble. The kind and blessed gentleman, which is so many parents to you, Oliver, when you have none of your own, are going to apprentice you, and to set you up in life, and make a man of you, although the expense to the parish is three pound ten. Three pound ten, Oliver, seventy shillings, one hundred and forty-six pences and all for a naughty orphan, which nobody can't love. As Mr. Bumble paused to take breath, after delivering this address in an awful voice, the tears rolled down the poor child's face, and he sobbed bitterly. Come, said Mr. Bumble, somewhat less pompously, for it was gratifying to his feelings to observe the effect his eloquence had produced. Come, Oliver, wipe your eyes with the cuffs of your jacket, and don't cry into your gruel. That's a very foolish action, Oliver. It certainly was, for there was quite enough water in it already. On their way to the magistrate, 
Mr. Bumble instructed Oliver, that all he would have to do would be to look very happy and say when the gentleman asked him if he wanted to be apprenticed, that he should like it very much indeed, both of which injunctions Oliver promised to obey. The rather is Mr. Bumble threw in a gentle hint that if he failed in either particular, there was no telling what would be done to him. When they arrived at the office, he was shut up in a little room by himself and admonished by Mr. Bumble to stay there until he came back to fetch him. There the boy remained with a palpitating heart for half an hour, at the expiration of which time Mr. Bumble thrust in his head, unadorned with the cocked hat, and said aloud, Now, Oliver, my dear, come to the gentleman. As Mr. Bumble said this, he put on a grim and threatening look and added in a low voice, Mind what I told you, you young rascal. Oliver stared innocently in Mr. Bumble's face at this somewhat contradictory style of address, but that gentleman prevented his offering any remark thereupon by leading him at once into an adjoining room, the door of which was open. It was a large room with a great window. Behind a desk sat two old gentlemen with powdered heads, one of whom was reading the newspaper, while the other was perusing, with the aid of a pair of tortoise-shell spectacles, a small piece of parchment which lay before him. Mr. Lincolns was standing in front of the desk on one side, and Mr. Gamfield, with a partially washed face, on the other, while two or three bluff-looking men in top boots were lounging about. The old gentleman with the spectacles gradually dozed off over the little piece of parchment, and there was a short pause after Oliver had been stationed by Mr. Bumble in front of the desk. This is the boy, your worship, said Mr. Bumble. The old gentleman who was reading the newspaper raised his head for a moment and pulled the other old gentleman by the sleeve, whereupon the last-mentioned old gentleman woke up. Oh, is this the boy? said the old gentleman. This is him, sir, said Mr. Bumble. Bow to the magistrate, my dear. Oliver roused himself and made his best obeisance. He had been wondering with his eyes fixed on the magistrate's powder, whether all boards were born with that white stuff on their heads and were boards from thenceforth on that account. Well, said the old gentleman, I suppose he's fond of chimney sweeping. He dotes on it, your worship, replied Bumble, giving Oliver a sly pinch to intimate that he had better not say he didn't. And he will be a sweep, will he? inquired the old gentleman. If we was to bind him to any other trade tomorrow, he'd run away simultaneous, your worship, replied Bumble. And this man that's to be his master, you, sir, you'll treat him well and feed him and do all that sort of thing, will you? said the old gentleman. When I says I will, I means I will, replied Mr. Gamfield doggedly. You're a rough speaker, my friend, but you look an honest, open-hearted man, said the old gentleman, turning his spectacles in the direction of the candidate for Oliver's premium, whose villainous countenance was a regular stamped receipt for cruelty. But the magistrate was half blind and half childish, so he couldn't reasonably be expected to discern what other people did. I hope I am, sir, said Mr. Gamfield with an ugly leer. I have no doubt you are, my friend, replied the old gentleman, fixing his spectacles more firmly on his nose and looking about him for the inkstand. It was a critical moment of Oliver's fate. If the inkstand had been where the old gentleman thought it was, he would have dipped his pen into it and signed the indentures, and Oliver would have been straightway hurried off. 
but as it chanced to be immediately under his nose, it followed, as a matter of course, that he looked all over his desk for it without finding it, and happening in the course of his search to look straight before him, his gaze encountered the pale and terrified face of Oliver Twist, who, despite all the looks and pinches of Bumble, was regarding the repulsive countenance of his future master with a mingled expression of horror and fear too palpable to be mistaken, even by a half-blind magistrate. The old gentleman stopped, laid down his pen, and looked from Oliver to Limkins, who attempted to take snuff with a cheerful and unconcerned aspect. My boy, said the old gentleman, you look pale and alarmed. What is the matter? Stand a little away from him, Beadle, said the other magistrate, laying aside the paper and leaning forward with an expression of interest. Now, boy, tell us what's the matter. Don't be afraid. Oliver fell on his knees and, clasping his hands together, prayed that they would order him back to the dark room, that they would starve him, beat him, kill him if they pleased, rather than send him away with that dreadful man. Well, said Mr. Bumble, raising his hands and eyes with most impressive solemnity, while of all the artful and designing orphans, that I ever see. Oliver, you're one of the most barefaced. Hold your tongue, Beadle, said the second old gentleman, when Mr. Bumble had given vent to this compounded adjective. I beg your worship's pardon, said Mr. Bumble, incredulous of having heard aright. Did your worship speak to me? Yes, hold your tongue. Mr. Bumble was stupefied with astonishment. A Beadle ordered to hold his tongue? A moral revolution. The old gentleman in the tortoise-shell spectacles looked at his companion. He nodded significantly. We refuse to sanction these indentures, said the old gentleman, tossing aside the piece of parchment as he spoke. I hope, stammered Mr. Limkins, I hope the magistrates will not form the opinion that the authorities have been guilty of any improper conduct on the unsupported testimony of the child. The magistrates are not called upon to pronounce any opinion on the matter said the second old gentleman, sharply. Take the boy back to the workhouse and treat him kindly. He seems to want it. That same evening, the gentleman in the white waistcoat most positively and decidedly affirmed, not only that Oliver would be hung, but that he would be drawn and quartered into the bargain. Mr. Bumble shook his head with gloomy mystery and said he wished he might come to good, whereon to Mr. Gamfield replied that he wished he might come to him which, although he agreed with the beadle in most matters, would seem to be a wish of a totally opposite description. The next morning, the public were once informed that Oliver Twist was again to let, and that five pounds would be paid to anybody who would take possession of him. Chapter 4 Oliver, being offered another place, makes his first entry into public life. In great families, when an advantageous place cannot be obtained, either in possession, reversion, remainder, or expectancy, for the young man who is growing up, it is a very general custom to send him to sea. The board, in imitation of so wise an example, took counsel together on the expediency of shipping off Oliver Twist in some small trading vessel bound to a good, unhealthy port. This suggested itself as the very best thing that could possibly be done with him. The probability being 
that the skipper would flog him to death in a playful mood some day after dinner, or would knock his brains out with an iron bar, both pastimes being, as is pretty generally known, very favourite and common recreations among gentlemen of that class. The more the case presented itself to the board in this point of view, the more manifold the advantages of the step appeared. So they came to the conclusion that the only way of providing for Oliver effectually was to send him to sea without delay. Mr. Bumble had been dispatched to make various preliminary inquiries, with the view of finding out some captain or other who wanted a cabin boy without any friends, and was returning to the workhouse to communicate the result of his mission, when he encountered at the gate no less a person than Mr. Sowerberry, the parochial undertaker. Mr. Sowerberry was a tall, gaunt, large-jointed man, attired in a suit of threadbare black with darned cotton stockings of the same colour and shoes to answer. His features were not naturally intended to wear a smiling aspect, but he was in general rather given to professional jocosity. His step was elastic, and his face betokened inward pleasantry as he advanced to Mr. Bumble and shook him cordially by the hand. I've taken the measure of the two women that died last night, Mr. Bumble, said the undertaker. You'll make your fortune, Mr. Sowerberry, said the beadle, as he thrust his thumb and forefinger into the proffered snuff-box of the undertaker, which was an ingenious little model of a patent coffin. I say you'll make your fortune, Mr. Sowerberry, repeated Mr. Bumble, tapping the undertaker on the shoulder in a friendly manner with his cane. Think so? said the undertaker, in a tone which half admitted and half disputed the probability of the event. The prices allowed by the board are very small, Mr. Beadle. So are the coffins, replied the Beadle, with precisely as near an approach to a laugh as a great official ought to indulge in. Mr. Sowerberry was much tickled at this, as of course he ought to be, and laughed a long time without cessation. Well, well, Mr. Bumble, he said at length, there's no denying that, since the new system of feeding has come in, the coffins are something narrower and more shallow than they used to be. But we must have some profit, Mr. Bumble. Well-seasoned timber is an expensive article, sir, and all the iron handles come by canal from Birmingham. Well, well, said Mr. Bumble. Every trade has its drawbacks. A fair profit is, of course, allowable. Of course, of course, replied the undertaker. And if I don't get a profit from this or that particular article, why, I make it up in the long run, you see. Just so, said Mr. Bumble. Though I must say, continued the undertaker, resuming the current of observations which the beadle had interrupted, though I must say, Mr. Bumble, that I have to contend against one very great disadvantage, which is that all the stout people go off the quickest. The people who have been better off and have paid rates for many years are the first to sink when they come into the house. And let me tell you, Mr. Bumble, that three or four inches over one's calculation makes a great hole in one's profits, especially when one has a family to provide for. As Mr. Sowerberry said this, with the becoming indignation of an ill-used man, and as Mr. Bumble felt that it rather tended to convey a reflection on the honour of the parish, the latter gentleman thought it advisable to change the subject. Oliver Twist being uppermost in his mind, he made him his theme. By the by, said Mr. Bumble, 
You don't know anybody who wants a boy, do you? A parochial apprentice, who is at present a deadweight, a millstone, as they may say, round the parochial throat? Liberal terms, Mr. Sarberry, liberal terms. As Mr. Bumble spoke, he raised his cane to the bill above him and gave three distinct raps upon the words five pounds, which were printed thereon in Roman capitals of gigantic size. Got so, said the undertaker, taking Mr. Bumble by the gilt-edged lapel of his official coat. That's just the very thing I wanted to speak to you about. You know, dear me, what a very elegant button this is, Mr. Bumble. I never noticed it before. Yes, I think it's rather pretty, said the beadle, glancing proudly downwards at the large brass buttons which embellished his coat. The dye is the same as the parochial seal. The Good Samaritan, healing the sick and bruised man. The board presented it to me on New Year's morning, Mr. Sowerberry. I put it on, I remember, for the first time, to attend the inquest on that reduced tradesman who died in a doorway at midnight. I recollect, said the undertaker. The jury brought it in, died from exposure to the cold and want of the common necessaries of life, didn't they? Mr. Bumble nodded. And they made it a special verdict, I think, said the undertaker, by adding some words to the effect that if the relieving officer had tush. Foolery, interposed the beadle. If the board attended to all the nonsense that ignorant jurymen talk, they'd have enough to do. Very true, said the undertaker. They would indeed. Juries, said Mr. Bumble, grasping his cane tightly, as was his wont when working into a passion. Juries is ineducated, vulgar, groveling wretches. So they are, said the undertaker. They haven't no more philosophy nor political economy about him than that, said the beadle, snapping his fingers contemptuously. No more they have, acquiesced the undertaker. I despise him, said the beadle, growing very red in the face. So do I, rejoined the undertaker. And I only wish we'd a jury of the independent sort in the house for a week or two, said the beadle. The rules and the regulations of the board would soon bring their spirit down for him. Let him alone for that, replied the undertaker. So saying, he smiled approvingly to calm the rising wrath of the indignant parish officer. Mr. Bumble lifted his cocked hat took a handkerchief from the inside of the crown, wiped from his forehead the perspiration which his rage had engendered, fixed the cocked hat on again, and turning to the undertaker said in a calmer voice, Well, what about the boy? Oh, replied the undertaker. Why, you know, Mr. Bumble, I pay a good deal towards the poor's rates. Well? Well, replied the undertaker. I was thinking that if I pay so much towards him, I have a right to get as much out of him as I can, Mr. Bumble. And so, I think I'll take the boy myself. Mr. Bumble grasped the undertaker by the arm and led him into the building. Mr. Sowerberry was closeted with the board for five minutes, and it was arranged that Oliver should go to him that evening upon liking. A phrase which means, in the case of a parish apprentice, that if the master find upon a short trial that he can get enough work out of the boy without putting too much food into him, he shall have him for a term of years to do what he likes with. When little Oliver was taken before the gentleman that evening and informed that he was to go that night as general house lad to a coffin maker's and that if he complained of his situation or ever came back to the parish again, he would be sent to sea, there to be drowned or knocked on the head, 
as the case might be, he evinced so little emotion that they, by common consent, pronounced him a hardened young rascal and ordered Mr. Bumble to remove him forthwith. Now, although it was very natural that the board of all the people in the world should feel in a great state of virtuous astonishment and horror at the smallest tokens of want of feeling on the part of anybody, they were rather out in this particular instance. The simple fact was that Oliver, instead of possessing too little feeling, possessed rather too much, and was in a fair way of being reduced for life to a state of brutal stupidity and sullenness by the ill usage he had received. He heard the news of his destination in perfect silence, and having had his luggage put into his hand, which was not very difficult to carry, inasmuch as it was all comprised within the limits of a brown paper parcel, about half a foot square, by three inches deep, he pulled his cap over his eyes, and once more attaching himself to Mr. Bumble's coat cuff, was led away by that dignitary to a new scene of suffering. For some time, Mr. Bumble drew Oliver along without notice or remark, for the beadle carried his head very erect as a beadle always should. And it being a windy day, little Oliver was completely enshrouded by the skirts of Mr. Bumble's coat as they blew open, and disclosed to great advantage his flapped waistcoat and drab plush knee breeches. As they drew near to their destination, however, Mr. Bumble thought it expedient to look down and see that the boy was in good order for inspection by his new master, which he accordingly did, with a fit and becoming air of gracious patronage. Oliver, said Mr. Bumble. Yes, sir, replied Oliver in a low, tremulous voice. Pull that cap off your eyes and hold up your head, sir. Although Oliver did as he was desired at once and passed the back of his unoccupied hand briskly across his eyes, he left a tear in them when he looked up at his conductor. As Mr. Bumble gazed sternly upon him, it rolled down his cheek. It was followed by another and another. The child made a strong effort, but it was an unsuccessful one. Withdrawing his other hand from Mr. Bumble's, he covered his face with both and wept until the tears sprung out from between his thin and bony fingers. Well, exclaimed Mr. Bumble, stopping short and darting at his little charge, a look of intense malignity. Well, of all the ungratefulest and worst disposed boys as I ever see, Oliver, you are... No, no, sir, sobbed Oliver, clinging to the hand which held the well-known cane. No, no, sir, I will be good indeed. Indeed I will, sir. I'm a very little boy, and it is so... So... So what? inquired Mr. Bumble in amazement. So lonely, sir. So very lonely, cried the child. Everybody hates me. Oh, sir, don't, don't pray be cross with me. The child beat his hand upon his heart and looked in his companion's face with tears of real agony. Mr. Bumble regarded Oliver's piteous and helpless look with some astonishment for a few seconds, hummed three or four times in a husky manner, and after muttering something about that troublesome cough, bade Oliver dry his eyes and be a good boy. Then once more, taking his hand, he walked on with him in silence. The undertaker, who had just put up the shutters of his shop, was making some entries in his day book by the light of a most appropriate dismal candle when Mr. Bumble appeared. Aha, said the undertaker, looking up from the book 
and pausing in the middle of a word. Is it you, Humble? No one else, Mr. Sowerberry, replied the beetle. Here, I've brought the boy. Oliver made a bow. Oh, that's the boy, is it? said the undertaker, raising the candle above his head to get a better view of Oliver. Mrs. Sowerberry, will you have the goodness to come here a moment, my dear? Mrs. Sowerberry emerged from a small room behind the shop and presented the form of a short, then squeezed-up woman with a vixenish countenance. My dear, said Mr. Sowerberry deferentially, this is the boy from the workhouse that I told you of. Oliver bowed again. Dear me, said the undertaker's wife, he's very small. Why, he is very small, replied Mr. Bumble, looking at Oliver, as if it were his fault that he was no bigger. He is small. There's no denying it. But he'll grow, Mrs. Sowerberry. He'll grow. Ah, I dare say he will, replied the lady pettishly, on our victuals and our drink. I see no saving in parish children, not I, for they always cost more to keep than they're worth. However, men always think they know best. There, get downstairs, little bag of bones. With this, the undertaker's wife opened a side door and pushed Oliver down a steep flight of stairs into a stone cell, damp and dark, forming the anteroom to the coal cellar and denominated kitchen, wherein sat a slatternly girl and shoes down at heel, and blue worsted stockings very much out of repair. Here, Charlotte, said Mr. Sowerberry, who had followed Oliver down. Give this boy some of the coal bits that were put by for trip. He hasn't come home since the morning, so he may go without him. I dare say the boy isn't too dainty to eat them, are you, boy? Oliver, whose eyes had glistened at the mention of meat, and who was trembling with eagerness to devour it, replied, in the negative, and a plateful of coarse broken victuals was set before him. I wish some well-fed philosopher whose meat and drink turned to gall within him, whose blood is ice, whose heart is iron, could have seen Oliver Twist clutching the dainty viands that the dog had neglected. I wish he could have witnessed the horrible avidity with which Oliver tore the bits asunder with all the ferocity of famine. There is only one thing I should like better, and that would be to see the philosopher making the same sort of meal himself with the same relish. Well, said the undertaker's wife, when Oliver had finished his supper, which she had regarded in silent horror, with fearful auguries of his future appetite, have you done? There being nothing eatable within his reach, Oliver replied in the affirmative. Then come with me, said Mrs. Sowerberry taking up a dim and dirty lamp and leading the way upstairs. Your bed's under the counter. You don't mind sleeping among the coffins, I suppose. But it doesn't much matter whether you do or don't, for you can't sleep anywhere else. Come, don't keep me here all night. Oliver lingered, no longer, but meekly followed his new mistress. Good night.